And please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, we're looking at verses 18 through 25 this morning. Last week, we emphasized the humanity of Jesus. Uh, Matthew began with a genealogy that confirms Jesus' royal heritage. And although Jesus was born in the line of King David, his immediate parents were poor and insignificant in stature. Jesus had a true humanity. And yet the genealogy was unique as well. Right, it, it, it explains uh, the relationship of Jesus to his parents in a very unique way. Right? He's been following along the fathers, occasionally mentioning the mother as well. But then you get to verse 16 and it says, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And so instead of following that pattern of naming the father uh, um, directly related to the son, Matthew carefully states that Joseph is not the physical father. And so we need some further explanation. And that's what we have in this passage this morning. So the genealogy roots Jesus in our humanity, and then the birth narrative reveals his divine nature. The hopes and fears of all the years under the old covenant have now reached their appointed time of satisfaction so that God would dwell among his people, not in a tabernacle, not in a temple, but in the flesh. And so in the early stages of Christianity, when Matthew is writing this gospel account, there would have been much confusion regarding the person of Jesus and his work. On, on top of the Jewish misunderstandings about the Messiah and the fact that, in their view, Jesus did not fit their preconceived notions, there were rumors and lies that had been circulating since the time of Christ's ministry. And so misunderstandings abound, really, in every generation about Jesus Christ. They abound in our time as well. Uh, go to the stores and look at the Christmas trinkets and slogans. Right, they're oftentimes depicting the themes of joy and peace and generosity, but they rarely center those themes on the Savior who perfectly exemplified them. And so as we read this passage, let us make sure that we center our hearts upon him. Before we read it, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this passage. We thank you for this reminder that we have. And it is a reminder we, we see throughout culture. Every story we walk into, there's, there's some recognition of, of this holiday season. And yet it is so far removed from the gospel accounts of Jesus Christ, that many of us tire of, of, of seeing it. But Lord, we should never tire of reading about it, of recognizing its significance for us and the purpose that it gives us in this life. So Lord, help us to just remove the distractions from our minds now. 
Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts that are softened to believe this truth. Lord, help us to be doers of your word and not hearers only. To give you glory and honor. And the way that we respond, Lord, may we be edified and may you be glorified. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Read with me Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, Matthew interestingly focuses on Joseph throughout this passage. Maybe you picked up on that. His account complements Luke's account, which is given from Mary's perspective. So Mary was also invited by an angel, or, or visited by an angel, it recorded in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. And when she learned about, in that visit, the, the pregnancy of Elizabeth, she left with haste to be with her for what seems to be several months. And from Matthew's account, it, it seems to indicate that Joseph found out about Mary's pregnancy secondhand. So maybe she fled in such haste to be with Elizabeth and to rejoice with her in, in, in the child who's in her womb and to recognize this incredible gift that she's received as the favored one of God that she didn't have a chance to talk to her betrothed. Whatever the explanation, we don't know, but Joseph was left in the dark. And, and that devastated him. Both accounts, Luke and Matthew, they mention that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. His mother Mary was uh, married to Joseph, and that Mary was a virgin when he was born. All three accounts have that very crystal clear. Um, so the accounts are, are different in the details they share, and yet they're compatible. And if you're ever confused about how they fit together or, or wanting to study this more, more fully... Um, find J. Gresham Machen's book, The, the, Bir uh, the Virgin Birth of Christ, written in 1930. You can find it for free online, or you can order a copy of it. But it does a thorough job of showing how both accounts complement each other. They don't contradict each other in any way. But this passage in, in Matthew begins with the, the devastation of Joseph. And if you're following along in your outline, that's your blank, the devastation of Joseph in verses 18 and 19. 
Matthew informs us that Mary conceived a child from the Holy Spirit. However, Joseph does not know what we know. He assumed Mary had an affair, and it left him devastated. But he also determines, out of compassion for her, that he's he's unwilling to, unwilling to, to put her to shame, it says in, in verse 19. He was a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, and so he resolved to divorce her quietly. Joseph was a just man, which indicates his, his righteous character. Right? He was not innocent, but like Abraham, he was counted righteous by faith. And he lived in covenant relationship with God and delighted to obey the law. Joseph is honored for having a right standing with the Lord. He trusted in the Lord and walked with him by faith. In other words, we could say he loved God and he loved his neighbor. And that's exemplified in the way he treats them. Something similar was said of John's parents, Elizabeth and Zechariah. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. We look at Mary's life in the early accounts, we see the same thing. Mary loved God. Right? That's, that's so clear in, in her poem. She was probably between the ages of 12 and 15. And yet her poem that's recorded in Luke 1... 46 through 56, is filled with allusions to Scripture. She understood God's Word better than most twice her age. And so all of this only served to compound Joseph's heartache. All of this only served to confuse him more. And so he resolved to divorce her quietly. Maybe you're wondering, why would he need to divorce her? They're just betrothed. They're engaged, right? Well, betrothal was a, a much more significant commitment. Uh, it was a binding contract between two families. And, and in fact, both families were involved from the very beginning of betrothal, even before the betrothal. Right? Oftentimes, the, the bride's parents would, would, would assist in finding um, a spouse, or the opposite, the groom's parents would assist in finding a bride. But the parents and families were involved, and there was an exchange of gifts or even service. Um, the couple did not live together, nor were they allowed to sleep together. The, the bride still stayed with her in her father's house. And so there was some amount of flexibility about how marriages were arranged, but, but once a betrothal occurred, the couple was treated as if they were married by, by all parties involved. In fact, they would have referred to the groom as the son-in-law. The other family would have referred to the bride as the daughter-in-law. They would have treated each other as family already. And so that's why you have that, that language um, throughout Scripture. Actually, Old and New Testament reflects this kind of language between betrothed people. Um, you know, even, even Lot's uh, sons were uh, his son-in-laws are betrothed to his daughters, and he calls them sons. And he asks them to, to join with them as they're, um, as they're fleeing from the wrath that was about to fall upon Sodom and Gomorrah. But you find examples of that throughout Scripture. And so the idea is that infidelity at this point was equivalent to adultery. 
uh, for for Mary to have have done this um, was equivalent to having an affair. So the law allowed for the guilty parties, according to Deuteronomy 22, to be stoned. Uh, it also allowed for husbands to give a certificate of divorce, which which was the standard practice at this time. So even in that, though, Joseph could have held a public trial and and had Mary before everyone um, held to, to kind of public ridicule and shame. But instead, it says he planned a quiet divorce, which, according to Numbers 5, would have just been between uh, Joseph and two witnesses. And so this would have maintained Joseph's righteous conformity to the law while also confirming his compassion for Mary. So in a moment, Joseph's marriage is over. Really, even before it's truly begun. He had to make the hardest decision of his life, but he believed it was the only honorable thing he could do. And and his recognition of the law, his love for, for Mary, this was the best option that he could come up with. You know, most of our, our favorite Christmas songs are about joy and celebration. And if you turn on the, the radio, you're more likely to hear songs about snow or the weather. It's cold outside. Oftentimes, when baby is mentioned in songs, it's not really about Jesus at all. It's more about romantic relationships, gift-giving, peace. You don't hear songs of heartache and longing. But the best hymns include lament. They draw out the themes of hopes and fears. And so there were many hopeful expectations that were met in Bethlehem the night Jesus was born. But Christ's birth was surrounded by characters who felt uncertainties and even devastation. And so we've all felt the heartache of devastation, whether it's the result of a a sudden act or a slow-building storm. We're left with a sense of hollow misery. And that may define your present state at this this Christmas. Or maybe this time has been filled with difficult news for you. May you take comfort in God's sovereign hand over you. I love how Sinclair Ferguson applies this. He says, Joseph does not yet know that it is God's action that has momentarily shattered his life. God sometimes does that, but only because he knows exactly what he plans to accomplish. What he did not yet know was this. The shattering of his hopes and expectations was the prelude to the discovery of the central purpose of his whole life. From now on, everything would revolve around Jesus. And so God sends Joseph the reassurance of an angel in verses 20 and 21. And and just as Joseph resolved to divorce Mary quietly, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and reassured him that Mary's child was conceived from the Holy Spirit. 
He told Joseph to fulfill his betrothal to Mary and to name her son Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so the child Mary conceived was from God. As we just sang, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. And in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. According to Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. The eternal word who was with God and was God, according to the prologue of John, became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally, Jesus, or, or God literally tabernacled among us in the person of Jesus. And so Matthew emphasizes two significant points for us, two doctrinal points. Jesus was man, he was born of a woman, and Jesus was God. He was conceived by the, by the Holy Spirit. And so it means that Jesus is both eternal in his divine nature and sinless according to his human nature. Descendants of ordinary generation sinned in Adam and fell with Adam. That's all of us. Everyone in this room are descendants of ordinary generation. Right? There's only one exception to that rule. Only one descended in an extraordinary way. Jesus is the only man who did not inherit a sinful nature. And so as God, Jesus could afford to pay the eternal penalty for our sin. And as man, he could represent those he came to save. Therefore, Jesus Christ is a mediator who is like us in every way and yet separate from us because he's without sin, including original sin. And so this news completely removed Joseph's fears regarding Mary's infidelity. But I'm sure in another sense it just added to his own inadequacy. Right? Who, who am I to take upon this task? He knew he wasn't qualified for this. God could have certainly revealed this news to Mary and Joseph at the same time. Right? That could have cleared up any confusion that we have here. That would have been a lot easier for everyone involved, but, but God had a purpose in allowing Joseph to experience these emotional hills and valleys. Right, more challenges await, as we'll see in the next chapter. But he would always have the angel's opening words to fall back on or to reflect upon. Joseph, son of David, do not fear. Right, even when relief is delayed, we know that God is working out all things for our good according to Romans 8, 28. God's revealed will is a means of comforting his people, even if it raises the burden we must bear moving forward. Right, learning to trust God with the uncertainties of life is, is part of how he prepares us for the next phase of his redeeming work in us and through us. And so the climax of the passage is actually the next verse, which shows how the Savior's 
virgin birth was the fulfillment of Scripture. That's your third point, the fulfillment of Scripture. All of this occurred in order to fulfill the Lord's word through Isaiah in chapter 7, verse 14 of Isaiah. And that's quoted directly in verse 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And so looking at Isaiah's context, as we did already, we read, uh, Ray read the passage from Isaiah 7. It does seem clear that this prophecy was initially fulfilled in his own day. Maybe as you were reading or reading along with Ray, you're thinking, I don't see how all of this points to Jesus. Well, that's because it was directly relevant to someone else at that time. Right, Isaiah 7, 14 through 16 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. So some have suggested that this is a reference to King Hezekiah or some other un an anonymous prophet. Uh, even a, a remnant of people has been suggested. Greg Bill follows many who think that the most likely candidate is actually Isaiah's own son, and that comes from the very next chapter. In Isaiah chapter 8, verses 3 through 4, we read this, And I, Isaiah speaking, I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son, then the Lord said to me, call his name Mahershalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria shall be carried away before the king of Assyria. And so this child is then referred to as Emmanuel. Later on in chapter 8, verses 8 through 10, and Israel's preservation is credited to the fact that God is with us, right? uh, which is what Emmanuel means. So just as in chapter 7, verse 14, Isaiah's children are called signs and portents or symbols at the end of chapter 8 in, verses, in verse 18. However, one chapter later in chapter 9, you find another messianic prophecy regarding the child who shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so this King of Kings will have a universal reign and establish everlasting peace. Clearly, it's not limited to an earthly king in chapter 9. And so the New Testament puts these prophecies together and finds their ultimate fulfillment in the birth of Jesus Christ. But now we have a problem. Because if the prophecy initially pointed to Isaiah's son, who was born of his wife, then how could it refer to her as a virgin? Was there some other extraordinary birth that takes place? Well, the Hebrew word Alma technically refers to a young girl of marriageable age. It doesn't have a reference directly to her virginity. That's recognized by just about everyone. But the Greek word is, 
translated or is, is used, it's parthenos. So in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the authors of the Septuagint use the word parthenos, which is almost always a reference to a virgin. And so they intentionally chose a word which would point to a miraculous birth, even though the Hebrew doesn't indicate that. Okay, this reveals the expectation of Jewish scholars that the Messiah's birth would be supernatural. And so regardless of Isaiah's context, it is clear, abundantly clear in Matthew and Luke, that, that the birth of this child w- was without a human father. Right, he was not only born of a young woman, but specifically he was born of a virgin, And that is the deeper and ultimate fulfillment of all the prophecies in Isaiah 7 through 9. So Matthew is right to reference 714 in this way. And so if you believe Jesus was born of a virgin, then you can believe all of the miracles that he did throughout his ministry. If you believe that God came came down to dwell in the midst of his people in the person of Jesus, then you can believe his promise to to always be with you even to the end of the age, as he says at the conclusion of Matthew. If you believe Jesus accomplished salvation on the cross, then you can believe that he rose again and ascended into heaven and makes continual intercession for you. These are the precious promises that God has revealed to us in order to sustain us, even as they sustained Joseph. So a supernatural birth was required for a Savior who could bring reconciliation between sinners and a holy God. And that's the meaning of the name of Jesus, which is our last section in verses 24 and 25, the name of Jesus. When Joseph woke up, he immediately obeyed the angel's instruction. The baby was circumcised and given the name Jesus. And so in in his human nature, Jesus had to learn the meaning of his name. His parents would have taught him that Jesus is derived from the Hebrew name Joshua, which means the Lord saves. And they would have told him that they did not pick the name for him. His name came directly from God, and it defines the purpose for which he came. And so if Jesus came to save his people from their sins, then no one is capable of saving themselves. You cannot do enough good works to merit eternal life. You cannot punish yourself enough to achieve forgiveness. If you are not justified before God in this life by faith alone, you will not be justified before him in death. Death doesn't automatically bring, turn you into an angel right, or make you at peace with God. You're justified by faith alone in Christ alone. And someone who canely hope of salvation is to believe in Jesus. And the one who came to save his people from their sins, he began the work of redemption when he entered the womb of a virgin. In humility, 
He took on flesh to ransom us, and he completed the work of redemption when he hung upon the cross, and he bore the wrath of God in our place, so that we sing, nails, spear, shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. Hail, hail, the word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. Have you called Jesus your Savior? Have you ever told him that you trust him alone and that he alone can save you from your sins? Have you thanked him for dying on the cross in your place? Have you humbled yourself before the King of Kings so that he might lift up your head and call you his own? He is with us even now by his Spirit. And so you can cry out to him in faith without delay. And just as Matthew's audience in the first century was in desperate need of one who could save them from their sins, so are we. There is no way to be saved except through Jesus Christ. The virgin birth affirms the true deity and true humanity of the only Savior of sinners. Jesus' birth established his identity as the Son of God and confirms the infinite value of his substitutionary death on behalf of his people. And so if that is true, then every one of us must humble ourselves, repent of our sins, trust in Jesus Christ for our salvation, and then worship him, power, and live for him with all our might and strength and power as he provides. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for this reminder that even as we reflect upon the birth of Christ, we can, we can be given hope in the midst of trials. We can be given strength. We can recognize that you are sovereign, that you are on your throne, that you are working out all things according to your design. And even as you purposed to bring devastation into the life of Joseph, you oftentimes do the the same in our own lives. We experience hills and valleys throughout this life. And all of them are opportunities to grow, to mature, to be prepared for the next phase that you have planned for us. And so, Lord, bring us comfort from this message. Bring us peace by your gospel. Fill us with hope. And, Lord, help us to worship you regardless of our circumstances to recognize that every good and perfect gift comes from you. And you did not withhold the greatest gift from us in sending your son to die in our place. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.